0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the Greater Pittsburgh Metropolitan Area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John's Gospel, to John chapter 6. We'll begin reading with verse 41 and we'll read through verse 59. John chapter 6, verse 41 through 59. John 6, verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him, that is Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Heavenly Father, we look to you, O Lord, this morning, and we call on you afresh that, Father, you would open up this dense passage to us. O Father, these verses can be very dense, and as we read them, we can sometimes think, what is this about? Uh, What are you trying to communicate and we look to you, O oh, Father, that you would be our teacher this morning, that, Father, you would be our guide, that you would open your word to our hearts and open our hearts, O oh, Father, to your word, that you would meet each one of us where we are this morning. We are all in different places. And, Father, we pray that, Lord, each of us would find uh, nourishment for our souls in this verse, that each of us would find encouragement, that each of us would come to see you in new ways, and that this would cause us to worship you afresh and that it would increase our capacity to worship you. We pray all these things in short, Father, that they would be for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said last week, the place where we stopped and started, there's a certain artificiality about that. And I think you realized that as we picked up there this morning and read from there, I thought about going back and saying, you know, for the sake of context, let's begin reading at verse 25 and we'll read through the end. But actually, I'm kind of glad in hindsight I didn't do that because I actually think it served as a great teaching vehicle to see that where we stopped and started really is kind of an artificial place. And that is the case, I think, no matter where we stop and start in this. As I've shared, I think really John 6 needs to be taken as one whole, Uh, but then we we think to ourselves, well, that would be a three- or four-hour-long sermon. And I know some of you said, come on, let's do it, but I'm not sure that would really be a good idea um, because that would be uh, uh, really, uh, that would just be so much material. Uh, but that having been said, we could do—you uh, could preach John six in one unit and touch on a couple of themes in it uh, very, very well, and and that would be a very uh, good way to approach this. We have several themes that are that are moving through this, and I'm going to point them out to you as we go along. But before I do, let me let before we jump into this. I think every once in a while I should mention, I know that in talking to some of you, some of you have said to me, well, when you first start coming here, it's so overwhelming. Uh, that It's like this is not what we're used to, and there's so much information. And um, let me speak to that. When I first started preaching years ago, I, I can remember an, a, a preacher uh, who had listened to one of my message messages say to me, you know, uh, there's, you know what you did was fine, but let me give you some advice. There's this acronym that you would do well to always hold on to, and it's called KISS, K-I-S-S, Keep It Simple Stupid. Now, many you're wearing masks, but I can tell some of you are smiling. Now, there is a sliver of truth to that, but here's the thing. Um, I, I did, I mean, I tried to follow that for a while, but I kept gravitating back to what I do. I always kept catching myself going back to, to what I do and here's the here's the practical the practicality of all of that. If I kept it simple, real simple every Sunday, I can tell you right now, in fact I can look around the room and I can almost guess who is going to be thinking about their grocery list while I'm preaching? Some of you are going to be thinking about changing the oil in your car, or you're going to be th- cuz you're going to be hearing the same stuff over and over and over again. Sometimes I make jokes about that that you know, he really does preach the same thing over and over again. Well, there's a sense in which that's true, but if I said the exact same things over and over again, it wouldn't be long before you got bored and you quit coming up them steps, am I right? So the whole idea is, I can remember reading a comment that was, pre- that was preached by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones years ago, and what, was, what really stuck with me was folks who came into his congregation and began to listen to him would often say exactly the same thing, and I'm not comparing myself to Lloyd-Jones with this comment, but they would say exactly the same thing to him. You know, wow, when we first started coming here, it was overwhelming. And his advice to them was, don't stop coming. Just keep coming, and you will catch up. In six months' time, you'll be right in there. Now, how many of you can say that's a true statement, I know some of you are shaking your head yes. That's a true statement. And that's. I think I should mention this because the last thing we want is for a visitor to come in here and and just feel like, wow, you know, I must be stupid because I look around everybody's on the edge of their seats, but this just seemed like an avalanche. Well, it seemed like an avalanche because it was an avalanche. When you're not used to it, it is, isn't it? It's like an avalanche of information. But... I want to encourage you. Just keep doing it. Keep doing it and keep doing it. Now, one of the things that we, that we have to do, I mean, I don't want to just start in verse 41 this morning and move forward. Uh, one of the ways that we really learn and we begin to really fasten this in our heart is by reviewing where we've been. And if we look back to the context, what has happened? Well, Jesus has fed uh, 5,000 men plus women and children, right? Right? And um, then uh, he travels to the western side of the shore uh, of Galilee. And the crowds can't figure out where he went. The crowds are still looking for him on the eastern side. And they finally decide, well, he must have sailed to Capernaum. They get in boats, and they go off to Capernaum. And in verse 25, they find him on the other side. And they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus, of course, responds to them saying, wow, you guys are so devoted. I, you know, you've traveled across the sea now twice to see me, and I'm, it, this, this devotion is marveling. I just It's so wonderful to see your devotion, right? Is that what he says? Are you with me? <laughs> That's not what he says, is it? If you look at verse 26, Jesus answered and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs, but because you got your bellies filled up. So ultimately, it's their stomachs that are driving them back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. And, of course, Jesus can say that because he knows what's in a person's heart. Uh, We don't have that. Um, We cannot see into someone's heart the way the Lord can see into someone's heart. But I pointed this out to you last week, that that's that's a pretty frank and abrupt uh, statement. It's a very pointed statement. But then Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. What is he talking about there? He's saying, listen, don't make it your life's goal. Don't, you know, don't make it your life's goal uh, to set your, your heart on things that are going to perish, but make it your life's goal to set your heart on things that endure to eternal life. That's what he's saying there. And uh, if you look at verse 27, the first half, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life from which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Well, then they say to him, well, what what must we do to be doing the works of God? You see how anxious they are to get busy and want to do something. There must be something that we can do. If we're going to get eternal life, there must be something we can do. And there's a deadly presupposition in that. Deadly. Look for it when you're ministering to people. Look for this. The presupposition that's in this is that they have the ability to do it. This is one of the chief and principal differences between an unbeliever and a believer. An unbeliever has come to the place where they realize, I can't do it. And it's precisely because of that they come to Jesus. The believer still thinks they can do it. They may need Jesus' help. They may need him to give them a little nudge. But they basically got it. That's one of the fundamental differences. And that is what is being advocated here by the crowd. What must we do? In other words, just tell us what we can do and we'll get busy doing it. Just tell us how to do it. Now, Jesus answered them. He says, okay, you want to do the work of God? Verse 29, this is the work of God. Believe in him who he has sent. Here's what you do. You believe. In other words, you trust. Now, I want you to hold on to that word believe. As I said, I was going to show you different themes that are in this. It's astonishing how often either belief comes up in this text or coming to me. Um, you'll notice that this is, this is going to come up over and over and over again in Jesus' discourse. And it's, it's part of the key of understanding this whole chapter. This is the work of God, verse 29, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now what's going on here is Jesus is making claims that are greater than the claims that were made by Moses. And the logic in the crowds is pretty simple. If you're going to make claims that are greater than the claims Moses made, then you should be able to do works that are greater than the works that Moses did. That's, That's... what's going on in their their minds for sure. And Jesus says to them in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they respond, Sir, give us this bread always. And last week I drew a parallel between that statement and the statement that the woman The Samaritan woman makes at the well because they're the same. It's the same thing happening all over again. If you recall, in John chapter four, Jesus goes into into uh, Samaria. He's at Jacob's well, and there he meets with this woman who's coming out in the heat of the day to draw water. And they begin to talk. And Jesus says, "Listen, if you knew who you were talking to here, you would ask him for living water." And she says to him, well, give me this water so that I will no longer have to draw from this well. Now, is she made it full circle yet? Is that a profession of, is that a true profession of faith? No. She's still short of saving faith with that profession. And the crowds are at the same place here. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now, what did Jesus say to them when he rebukes them? You didn't come here because you saw the sign. You came here because you got your bellies filled up. What does he mean by seeing the sign? What he means by seeing the sign is, of course, they saw the miracle that Jesus performed. They ate from the bread, but they didn't see what the sign was signifying. And because they didn't see what the sign was signifying, we're going to see here in a few minutes, they were unable to believe in him who has been sent. Follow me? That's what's happening here. And um, Jesus goes on to say, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Then Jesus makes this statement that is it's an, it's, it's, it's an earth-shattering statement. He says that all that the Father gives me will come to me. There Jesus is pointing to a group of people whom the Father has given to the Son. Now, he's pointing to what we call predestination or election, if you will. And he says all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, last week I pointed out, uh, here we see the sovereignty of God and salvation. Who comes to Jesus? Those whom the Father has given to Jesus. But we also see the need to hear the word, the, the word of the Lord and to come, whoever comes to me. Notice in, they're both in that verse. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So all that the Father has given to the Son will come, but those will indeed Come, we see the sovereignty of the Lord, we see human responsibility in both of, in that very verse, we see both things. Uh, in verse uh, 38, "I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me." Again, he's pointing to this group of people. Uh, my, my work is not to lose a single one of them. OK? but raise it up on the last day. We'll notice that that phrase is going to repeat a number of times. That's another theme that's being brought up here. Is this resurrection, the final resurrection, if you will? It's in verse 39. It's also in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes him. There's belief again. Looking on the Son is another way of saying belief. Looking on the Son. We could think, if we stopped right there for an illustration, we could think of the illustration that we have in the wilderness, where the Israelites are grumbling against God and God plagues them with these fiery serpents, these poisonous snakes, and they begin to get bit and they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord tells Moses, fashion a bronze serpent so that whoever looks upon the serpent shall uh, be saved from these poisonous snake bites, if you will. So the idea of looking on the serpent, what did that mean? That means they heard the promise of God that everyone who looks upon the serpent will be saved, so they heard the promise, and they embraced the promise. That's another way of saying exactly the same thing. It's another way of saying belief. So in verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day there's that raise him up at the last day again and this brings us to verse 41 how do the jews respond and by the way that's why i made them the where i stopped last week i thought okay we do have we have the jews response it's not their first response and it's not even their first objection but we have an objection by the jews in verse 41 here so the jews grumble they grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Not so much because he said he's the bread, but because he said he came down from heaven. Look at verse 42. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? <laughs> you could almost, if you wanted to put it in contemporary terms, you could almost think, you know, you could hear the fellows talking, you know. Jesus, I can remember when you I can remember when your father Joseph brought into the, brought you to the union hall for the first time. You know, I I remember when you first started. In fact, hey, listen, that there's something different about you? No problem. I mean, when we smash our fingers, man, sometimes fancy words come out of our mouths. But no, not you. You always you're completely holy, etc. You, you can kind of hear that talk. We know this Jesus. We know his father. We know his mother. Now let's stop right there for a moment. Because right here we see something where A faulty view of the person of Jesus leads us to miss eternal life. They don't believe in him. They have a faulty view of who he is. Now, when I said earlier, you know, he's always saying the same thing every Sunday. What do I mean by that? There's a sense in in which that's an exaggerated statement, but the sense in which I mean it in is with every sermon, I'm always trying to take us to Jesus. Now, why am I always trying to take us to Jesus? Because it's important that we come to know who he is. How important is that? Where you spend eternity. That's how important that is. Because if we file up about the person of Christ Jesus, then we file up for all eternity. And that's what every sermon, every sermon should take us to Jesus. Every sermon should present Christ, and every sermon should present Christ as he is being presented in the passage of Scripture that we're studying. Does that make sense? Now, um, they continue. Um, Verse 42, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? You see, that's the problem. He's saying he come down from heaven. We know it's that kid from Nazareth saying he's coming down from heaven. Was he lost his mind? Has he been out in the sun too long? Verse 43, Jesus responds, do not grumble among yourselves. Notice what he returns to in verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's, he's expounding on what he said in verse 37. He's back to predestination and election again. And he's adding to it. He's expounding on it. In verse 37, he says, there's this group of people that the Father has given me, and all that the Father has given me will come to me. But in verse 44, he is saying that the Father is drawing those people. He is drawing. And in fact, as we study John's gospel, we're going to find that this is not just the work of the first person of the Trinity, but it's the work of the entire Trinity, It's the Father who draws people. It's the Son who draws people. We're going to see in chapters 14, 15, and 16 that the Holy Spirit's involved in this work as well. It's a triune effort, laboring in concert, to draw men, women, and children to Jesus. I have in my toolbox a really, really handy tool, and it's a magnet. And I can't tell you how handy it is. That tool is. It's a magnet, and it's on. It looks like a little bit like a screwdriver with a magnet on the end of it, and it's telescopic. You can pull it out. Now, Tommy even has some fancy ones you can bend in certain ways and get into all kind of crevices and stuff. Why is that so handy? Because you're always dropping stuff, and I'll tell you what. Cars will swallow sockets and bolts. You drop those things, they're never to be seen again, and you need them. And you take these magnets and you fish in the general vicinity where you think it went. And lo and behold, once in a while you pull it out, and what's on the end of it? There it is. You have this magnet that draws that bolt or that socket or whatever it is that you draw. It works. Gravity resists it, but it works against it, drawing it to itself. Here we see the Father in much the same way, drawing people to Christ Jesus. Verse, it's beautiful. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. There he is back on the resurrection again. You see that thread? I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. That's why we chose Isaiah 54 this morning. And I ask you to hang on to verse 13. What's verse 13 say? It's one of the promised blessings of the new covenant age is that God will teach us. That God will teach us. That's why in my prayers, I always ask the Lord, Lord, be our leader and guide. Teach us this morning. We got good warrant for praying that way, don't we? And that's ultimately what we want. Uh, We want the Lord to teach us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. God teaches us through his word. And verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You know, you're, you're at a wedding somewhere or you're at a funeral someplace and or, or whatever. You know, I think of all of the different places I've spoke at, whether it be, you know, down at the Clark Field, we had some opportunities to speak down there. And you share the gospel. And you look around and you see that there's some people that just cannot wait for this to be over. But you'll look around uh, others who you can really kind of get a sense they've, 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 they're in Christ because they're excited that someone's preaching the gospel and they want to hear the whole thing. But then you'll have someone you'll have some others that are sitting there looking at you like wow, what's this? What's that all about? And I got to say I think every single time I've ever done this, I've seen all three of those faces. And it's the people that are sitting there kind of like what's up with that? Sometimes they'll hit you with some follow-up questions once in a while. Sometimes you never see them again. But sometimes you hear about it later. Uh, where uh, Tammy happened to be speaking to somebody. I did the funeral for her mom many years ago, and her son was present. And her, her son wasn't very excited about what I said at that, at that funeral. But what I said, the Lord used to reverberate in their hearts. And over the six months after that funeral, they finally got to the place where they just couldn't ignore it no more, and they came to faith. And now they're an active member in the church. It's the Father drawing them against the gravity of unbelief and love for sin, drawing them and pulling them to himself in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful, isn't it? So beautiful. Verse 46 is an easy one to lose. I'm thankful for D.A. Carson and his comments on verse 46. Many commentaries look at verse 46 as kind of a parenthesis, a parenthetical statement. You can think of it as being in parentheses. But D.A. Carson points out that actually it's quite profound if you meditate on it a little bit, and I invite you to do that. Um, If you look at verse 45, everyone um, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, or uh, we could say they will all be taught by God. Someone could get the impression that, okay, I could crawl up the Himalayas somewhere and just sit and be alone with the father and come to saving faith well that may happen but if it does happen you will come to you will only come to the father through the son you're not going to come to the father around the son i think that really opens this verse up because jesus says in verse 45 And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is the one who stands between men and God, period. There is no other. He is the one, as D.A. Carson puts in his comments, he is the one who narrates the Father to us. We could put it another way. He is the mediator. He is the one, uh, if you will, who who opens the way. He is the way. Later in the gospel, he will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one what? No one comes to the Father except through him. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, there's that belief again. You see how often that's coming up in our text? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, I can remember sitting in seminary one time and um, we were in systematic theology and the professor Uh, mentioned John 6, and he had said something like, John 6 sort of sounds like the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? And I scooted right up on the edge of my chair because I had been wrestling with that very thing. Does John 6 point directly to the Lord's Supper or not? I hadn't at that point become completely sold that it does. I was really like, and when he had mentioned that, because that was kind of a personal thing of study of mine, I'm on the edge of my chair. Then he got talking about a number of things, some and some questions come from the class, and off we went, didn't answer the question. Um, is Jesus, with this text, pointing directly to the Lord's Supper? I answer, no. No. But there's, there's, a, there's a way that we, I think there's a way that we need to see this, and it's really important. In verse 51, notice what Jesus says. He says, I am the living bread that come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. But look at this last sentence. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, what, what comes to your mind? Those of you who have been in this study since John chapter 1, verse 1, what comes to mind? Perhaps it's verse 14 in John 1. You know, in John 1.1, we have the the beginning was the Word, and the Word Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Then you move on down, and the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. Draw a line from there to John 3.16. John 3.16. What's John 3.16 say? Take a look. John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, let's go back to verse 51 in John 6. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his son who was from where? Heaven. Heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What is Jesus directly pointing to? It's not the Lord's Supper. It's the cross. It's the cross. If we run clear out to the Lord's Supper, we've skipped something really important here. If you take a sheet of paper, if you take this, Okay, instead of holding it like this, you hold it like this. And on the left side, you put John 6. On the right side, put the Lord's Supper. And in the middle, put the cross. Just draw a cross. I think the best way to look at this is to draw a line from John 6 to the cross. And then put an arrow. John 6 with an arrow pointing to the cross and then to come over here to the Lord's Supper and draw another arrow that's pointing from the Lord's Supper to the cross. That would be the best way to look at this. So we can see that, we can see that there's, they're informing each other, but there's no direct line. It's indirect. It's not direct. Why is that important? Because Jesus is teaching at this point in time. He's beginning to teach of his cross work here. This is a, to, to take this clear out to the Lord's Supper would be, as some of the commentators have said, anachronistic. That is, that is, that is taking it, um, that, that, that's getting out ahead, that's getting the cart out ahead of the horse. Well, let me give you a, one other reason why I say that. It's been a little while since we pointed there, but go with me to John chapter 20. Many of you know exactly where I'm going. Why did John write his gospel? What is John's purpose in writing his gospel? If you look at John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, we're told that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But verse 31 these are written so that you may what? There's that word believe again. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's evangelistic. Now, those who are in Christ can read John's gospel, and we can find ourselves edified over and over and over again, and we're to do that. But the primary purpose of John's gospel and writing is to present Jesus as the Son so that people will believe. Does that make sense? And what is he doing right here? He's pointing to the work that he's going to do on the cross. He's pointing to the cross. Verse 52, back to John 6, Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, what's going on here? They're taking him literally. As he's using figurative language and metaphor, they're taking him literally. They're taking him literally. Now, what's going on in their minds? Well, everything from, as one commentator said, everything from perplexity to abhorrence. I mean, at best, they're bewildered and perplexed by what in the world are you saying? At worst, they're finding the whole thing repugnant. Wait a second. How do you want us to eat your flesh? That sounds gross. What are you talking about? Now, this is the place, this is something amazing taking place right here. This is the place where Jesus, you know, he turns it down and he says, oh, you know, wait a second, you guys, you're misunderstanding me. You're taking, this, you're taking it literally, I mean it figuratively, and he turns it down, right? Is that what Jesus does? That's what we would do today, I think. Unfortunately, that's what's going on in a lot of places, is this stuff is being, it's being, turned down instead of being turned up why is it being turned down well because if you turn it up half the people are going to leave i had a seminary professor Uh, he's now gone to be with the lord but he he used to say if you preach the gospel in many of these churches you'd clear the whole room That's his true statement. I remember when I first started doing pulpit supply, I used to think, if you just go into these churches that are dying and preach the gospel, it would would revolutionize them. And then I got opportunities to go into some of these churches and preach the gospel. Whoa. (laughs) They didn't like the gospel too good in there. Well, yeah, that's why there's no gospel in there. They won't tolerate the gospel. That's why they're dying. Now, let's look at what Jesus does here. In verse 52, the Jews dispute among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Notice what Jesus does in verse 53. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He turns it up. Boy does he turn it up. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to see what happens. They leave, don't they? They leave. Now, what does Jesus mean? We know he's not t- talking literally. What what then does he mean? If you look at verse 54 and you compare it to verse 40, there is Somewhat of what we call an inclusio. You've heard me use that word before. Inclusio, Um, brackets. There is kind of a set of brackets there. Uh, You could think of an inclusio as a bracket um, uh, where you have, or or, uh, uh, on a bookshelf, you have the bookmarkers. You know, or not bookmarkers, but the uh, what do they call those things? Bookends. Thank you, metal block. You have the you have a bookend here and you have a bookend here that's keeping all the books together. If you look at verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. And then you look at verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. These are in parallel with each other. These are two bookends, and they're saying exactly the same thing. One is saying it figuratively, putting it in figurative language to teach a spiritual principle. And the other one is, is, is speaking literally. In verse 40, Jesus says, this is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Literally speaking, what are we to do? We're to look to Jesus. We're to put our faith and our trust in him. In verse 54, Jesus puts the same thing another way. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. What does it mean to feed on Jesus' flesh and drink his blood? It means to feed on him. It means to put your trust and your faith in Him. That's what this meant by this image. Because that is true nourishment for the soul. In fact, it's such nourishment that as we do this, our soul finds life. It's revigorated. It's given life, and it's given life eternally. Does that make sense? And sometimes we'll speak this way. I can remember hearing a comment by uh, Eric Alexander. How many are familiar with Eric Alexander? He's a preacher, a preacher. Um, he's been around for a very, very long time, um, uh, preacher in the UK, and I remember hearing him say in a sermon one time, he had called up one of his friends, and he'd asked him, what are you grazing on? What are you grazing on? Now, what did he mean by that? He was asking him what he's reading. What are you reading and feeding on? See, we talk that way, don't we? We talk like that. You know, some of us have devotionals that we read in the morning. And what do they do? By pointing to, if they're good devotionals, they're develop, they're they're doing the same thing that a sermon would do. They're developing Christ, aren't they? And it is what? It feeds and nourishes your soul, doesn't it? Providing you're in Christ, it it doesn't have that effect to an unbeliever. Unbeliever might be confused and perplexed by it and find it to be quite boring. But the believer, no, the believer actually finds bread in this. Our daily bread. Now, when when you start seeing that, you see Jesus is talking about trusting and believing through this whole thing, isn't he? And now the miracle begins to make sense. You see, that's why this whole thing has to be taken in one unit. Is Jesus feeding 5,000 men, save women and children, just because he doesn't want them to go home hungry? Well, he doesn't want them to go home hungry. He's worried they'll faint on the journey home. But he also wants to teach a profound lesson about who he is. He is the bread who has come down from heaven. How is it that he's the bread who come down from heaven? Because he's going to give his flesh up on the cross and die in the place of everyone who the Father has given to him. And as this is presented to their souls... It will be as food like they've never eaten in their life. It will be as drink like they've never drank in their life. Ask of me and I'll give you water, living water. And he who drinks of this living water will never thirst again. Talk about your experience in Christ. Isn't it like that? Has he so profoundly changed you that it's like, you know what? I can never see the world again like I once did. I can never see life like I once did. I can never see anything again like I once did. He is everything. And he is so everything that he's, it's almost like he's removed me from my circumstances. This is how the, the apostles can receive floggings and then be locked in jail and their ankles locked to each other after they've received beatings and be singing hymns. How can you sing a hymn after you've been beat and your, your ankles are locked to your buddy's ankles? That doesn't sound like fun. It's because of the bread who come down from heaven, who's fed their souls. And after that, everything's different, isn't it? Everything's different. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. You want a sign. You want want me to show you a sign. So Moses... You think Moses gave you that man in the wilderness? No, it wasn't Moses. It was the Father who gave you the man in heaven. You ate that. You still got hungry, and you died. But you are staring at the true bed that the Father has sent, who has come down from heaven. And you feed on me, and you will live forever. What does it mean to feed on him? Keep verse 40 and verse 54 in parallel, and you'll always know the answer to that question. It's to look on the Son and believe on him. That's why Augustine famously said, I have a quote from him, he famously said, believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten. That's a good way to put it, isn't it? Believe and you have fed on Jesus. Jesus said these things, verse 59, in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe before you this morning, Father. I can say my heart is filled with awe as as I try to expound these verses that are so far beyond me, Lord. They're beyond all of us. Father, these words that you have spoken, these words that have come from the very mouth of God, and, oh, Lord, what do we say in response to this great salvation you've given us? You have truly given us that which can give life and nourish our souls. And it is he who has dwelt among us, the word who has become flesh. For God, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. Oh, Father, believing in him is feeding on him. And oh, Father, we so thank you and we so praise you, oh, Father, for this, this tremendous chapter, Father, that we could study for many, many weeks. And all we would do is come to love it more and more and more and more because we would come to love you more and more and more who has given us these precious words. Oh, Father, strengthen our faith. Strengthen our understanding of these precious verses, oh, Father. Draw us closer to you that we may return worship to you that's increasingly pleasing in your sight. Oh, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.